Well, I uh, am going to let you know what we're doing this morning. This is um, going to be a little different than normal. So if you're new, we are, we are an expository preaching church, one of our core values on the wall. And, uh, and even though I will do that this morning, we are normally, if you show up to Harvest Church, we are normally marching through some book of God's word, which I love to do. But we have this little interim right here. I'm going to start a new series um, either Labor Day or week after Labor Day, and, and, uh, and everybody's wondering what that series is going to be. Me too, okay? Um, I, I, know it's gonna, I know we're going to be digging in deep in the Old Testament, and I'm excited about that. I think we're going to be somewhere between 1400 and 1000 BC, okay? So that's, I'm, we're, I'm hunkering there. I'm just trying to figure out where exactly God wants us to shine the light into his word in that time period. I can't wait for that journey, so that'll be coming up shortly. In the meantime, uh, What's been impressed upon me this week particularly is um, two weeks ago when I was teaching and and, uh, closing out the book of Ephesians, uh, we had that concept of an ambassador of Christ that uh, was uh, in that uh, uh, second to last paragraph of of Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. And at that time, in that message, I said, uh, you know, this should be an entire sermon to itself. And I said like three or four quick things really fast, y'all all looked at me cross-eyed, and then I moved on. And so I think that uh, that sermon, or at least some further discovery, uh, it's been weighing on me, and I want to do that today. So I want to go a little bit deeper into the idea of what does it mean to be an ambassador of Christ. I mentioned a scripture two weeks ago um, that in, uh, when I was being uh, discipled, I was in a discipleship relationship with Soup Campbell about 20 years ago. Uh, we met each week to study scripture, and he first taught me this passage, and I'm going to present much of what he taught me, uh, along with a few other things I think the Lord gave me specifically for our body in this message. So if you would stand your feet for the reading of God's word, today we're going to be in 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. Another exception to the norm is this morning I'm actually in my old 1984 NIV. You'd say, why? I love the way this verse renders in this translation. So, that's all I got. I hope that's okay. First John 1.1, 1, 1, the word of God reads this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. This is the word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, in just a, 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 a brief study of your word this morning, I'd ask that uh, you do shine the light uh, of truth onto your words by the power of your Holy Spirit. You enable those words, your words, to be transformative in our lives, that we are not uh, this morning uh, immune or uh, uh, that we are not hardened towards your word, that, that our, the, the soil of our hearts will be soft to receive Uh, your word this morning, and that you would implant it deeply in our hearts, that you would birth something, a a new vision, uh, an inspired vision, uh, maybe renewing uh, an old kindled affection, and that you would uh, produce from this morning great fruitfulness in our lives and in our body. God, as I teach, I must decrease. For Lord Jesus, you must increase. So I'd ask that in your name for your glory. Amen. 
All right, so there's a movie that I like. Um, occasionally I'll refer to it, and uh, this is one of those mornings where I think it, it, uh, it, it sets the table for us well. Um, it's the movie Saving Private Ryan. In this particular movie, uh, set uh, in uh, 1944, just on the heels of the invasion of Normandy, World War II, there's um, Captain John Miller in Company C. And uh, after they have stormed Normandy, they have set up the beachhead, they've been successful, they are given a task. And their specific task, just a, a small group of men, I don't know if there were maybe eight or ten men, if I remember correctly, was uh, that word had come back uh, that there was a family of four sons, three of those sons had been killed, there was one son whose name was uh, Private James Ryan, and he was a paratrooper in the 101st uh, airborne. This is based on a true story, by the way. And he was the lone survivor of the boys and his family. And according to our United States military, which I love this, if that's ever the case, they, they pull that guy home so that his parents are not left uh, with no one to care for them. And so Captain Miller, just after Stormy Normandy with his company, is, is tasked with uh, uh, escaping or, or escaping through enemy lines, getting to uh, where Private Ryan is, which they don't exactly know, and bringing him home. And, of course, when he tells his men, they're, they're not thrilled about this. They're saying, we're about to all risk our lives to try to save this one guy's life, which may, he may already be dead. And he's saying, hey, this, this is our task. These are our orders. This is what we're doing. And so they go, and sure enough, they, they, um, it's an arduous journey. Uh, on the way, just to find Private Ryan, they lose one of their own. And, uh, and this is a difficult moment for them to stomach, and they continue on the journey. And they finally find Private Ryan in Rommel, France, defending a bridge against the uh, advancing German troops. And it's a dire situation. And they can't get Private Ryan to leave. When they tell him what's happened, he's devastated, his brothers have died. But he said, I, I can never dishonor their legacy, nor these men that I'm fighting with. I'm not going to leave that they may all die here. And Captain Miller realized uh, the determination of Private Ryan. He also couldn't really object to his premise. And so he told the company, We've got to bring him home. He's not leaving until this bridge is secured. We're, we're here to fight. And so they do. And sure enough, in the uh, bloody uh, battle that ensued, every man in Company C died. And the last one living was Captain Miller. And uh, the last two living, before they were successfully able to blow up the bridge and thwart the German advances, were Captain Miller and Private Ryan. And Captain Miller was wounded and was dying and Private Ryan approached him and he looked at him and he said to him amidst the bloodied fallen soldiers who had given their lives to save his, he said, earn this, earn this. And then he died. Uh, it's really a uh, powerful moment. You can tell this moment overwhelms Private Ryan. He didn't deserve all these men to die, that he might have a life to live. You could tell that was going to radically impact how he lived all of his days. And what an incredible picture of the gospel it brings to light, that we have a Savior who's not just a Savior, but a rescuer who literally came and rescued us from the dominion of darkness. We were legitimately captives to legitimate chains of sin. We were enslaved and he transferred us 
to the kingdom of his own, of light, of the beloved son, that we might be captives to grace and that changing masters from the prince of evil to grace, when grace becomes our master, we are compelled to serve Christ. That there was a rescuer, her rescuer who literally gave his life that we might have life. For the Christian, that's powerful. That's transformative. We sit and we, we are held captive by that very thought that we don't deserve the life that we've been given. We've been given it because one died in our place. And we live our days just as Private Ryan must have looked around and said, I want to live in a way that makes the death of these men who gave their lives to me, that makes their deaths count. We live in such a way that would honor the death of Christ in our place. Amen? Okay, so how do we do this? How does the Christian who's compelled by the love of Christ live in such a way as to honor him? Now, I pointed out a scripture two weeks ago, 2 Corinthians. Let me just revisit this and then we'll get into 1 John 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in the classic passage where we see this. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, we celebrate that verse. That's a a picture of our salvation. If anyone is in Christ, by grace through faith, you're in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. You're born again if you put your faith and trust in Christ. Now, I want to tell you this. If we were to back up from that verse, two verses earlier in 14, we'd see Paul writing this. Christ's love compels us. Compels. You understand that word? It moves us in a certain way. Because we're convinced one died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Isn't that, isn't that what Private Ryan understood in that moment, surrounded by those bodies who had given their life? My life's not about me anymore. It's about honoring those who have died in my place. Paul says that's what the Christian does in view of the love of Christ. And then he says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And then he says, this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. The blood of Christ is the peace treaty that reconciles us unto God and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he's committed the message of reconciliation to us. We are therefore Christ ambassadors. So listen. The idea is that a Christian be so taken, be so held captive by the love of Christ, the grace of God in Christ, that we're compelled to serve him. And, and, and it's, you're there just saying, point me in the right direction. How do I respond to the grace of God in Christ? And what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, what's true of the one who is born again, the new creation in Christ, is God is using you He's taking you who are compelled by the love of Christ to serve him, and he's taking your life, and your life has a purpose. It has a calling, a primary calling, that every context of your life, this calling is meant to be uh, lived out, fleshed out. And that calling is that God will take your life, and you will be a reconciler of lost men to a holy God. You will be an ambassador, a representative of Christ to a world that doesn't know him. That's the high calling of your life. You stand in the gap that Jesus stood in for you. And you draw men unto the light of Christ. 
And I just want to kind of stop before we get into 1 John, which, which, which walks us out how we do this, and say, how are you doing with this? Just very, but this whole message is going to be pretty, pretty practical. I don't want to get lost in the weeds theologically. I want us to reasonably consider our lives and think, is my life active, present tense, in real time, is my life reconciling lost men to God? Is my life drawing lost men and women to Jesus? It's just an honest question. Or, without stealing my own thunder from what I will get to in a little bit, or is, 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 is something missing there? Or if, if you somehow been distracted uh, have you been sidetracked from the primary calling of being an ambassador? Has your, uh, is your life missing the mark of its high calling and its purpose for other things? That doesn't necessarily always mean evil or bad things. Certainly could be, could be entangled in sin, but it could be good things that you've made an ultimate thing, which is called idolatry. But are you active tense today? Is your life reconciling men to the cross? I want us to consider that together. Uh, Soup taught me 20 years ago, what does it mean to represent Christ? It means to represent Christ. And he took me to this verse, which I take you to this morning, out of 1 John 1. He says, how do we represent Christ? Well, we do it this way, that which was from the beginning. We're talking about Christ himself, the word. The word made flesh is Jesus, so we're talking about Jesus. This is the apostle John, the beloved disciple, writing. He says, which we, talking about the apostles, we've heard They've heard from the very lips of Christ. They've heard the truth of the gospel, which we have seen with our eyes. They've seen the incarnate Son of God, the Word made flesh, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. Remember Doubting Thomas? Can I, can I touch where the, where the nails pierced? I can't believe it's you. And then, then John writes, this we proclaim concerning the Word of life. So we represent Christ Audibly, did you see that? That which we've heard. We represent Christ visibly, that which we have seen. We represent Christ tangibly, that which our hands have touched. We represent Christ audibly, visibly, tangibly. Let me talk about those three just for a few minutes. How do we represent Christ audibly? Audibly, using our words. Uh, in the same way Christ presented himself, it's going to be the answer to every one of these three. Christ presented what was true. In a world full of darkness and confusion and immorality and idolatry, he presented the truth. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He said, I'm the way to the Father. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said, I'm the bread of life. Anyone who eats of me, he'll never hunger again. Uh, uh, he who drinks of me, and the, the living water that will flow from his belly, life will flow from within him. He said, he who's tired and weary, come to me and you'll find rest for your soul. Jesus presented the truth of himself as the fulfillment of the entire anticipated Old Testament and one who came to pay the redemption price, the wage of our sin, that we might be made alive in him alive unto God through him. 
And so how do we present Christ audibly? Now, I thought of two kind of uh, tracks here. One is all those commandments in Ephesians that we just studied. By the way, by the way, I meant to say this. The backdrop of all these is this won't be easier come naturally. Why? It's what we just studied all summer. This is a war. Like this is warfare. Ephesians anchored us in an identity in Christ, and then that starts with being unified. That's the beginning of maturity in Christ, and then warfare. Like the enemy will come after you, will come after us. There's a spiritual battle going on, and the enemy's goal in your life is to keep you off the battlefield, to keep you from fighting well or from fighting long, to wear you down and wear you out, to see you as a casualty on the spiritual soul battlefield for the souls of man. And in this war, we're meant to audibly present Christ. Well, uh, there's all these commands in Ephesians. Don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Uh, Don't gossip. Uh, 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 Speak only what is edifying to build others up according to their needs. No coarse joking. We could go through and go, wow, okay, well clearly audibly representing Christ would be obedience to these commands. I mean, again, he's the picture-perfect preeminent example. It's him we're trying to emulate or imitate. It's his speech that we want our speech to be likened unto. But in the context of Ephesians where Paul says, pray for me that words may be given me that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. The context specifically there is not merely having a speech that is chaste unto God, but it's evangelism. It's saying, my mouth needs to speak forth words that would illumine the gospel to lost people. Now, God's got to turn on the lights, but I am a messenger of that truth. In the same way Jesus brought forth the truth and the apostle John heard that salvation is found in Christ and only in Christ That's the message that's meant to proceed forth from the mouth of those compelled by the love of Christ as his ambassadors. So yet again, I told you very practically, I just want to ask the question. There's a lot of ways I could ask this. My goal is not to shame anyone. It's just convicting for me and ask it to you. When's the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? I thought about this. We we, we we need to be real careful as a church. 1 Corinthians uh, 13 speaks to this, that You can bask in the knowledge and glory of God, but if you merely are intake without any output, then then you're going to become arrogant. You know, the Dead Sea's dead because all the water flows in and nothing flows out. And we don't want to be a church that's becoming ever increasingly theologically literate while the missional edge is growing dull. The way that we remain humble because it humbles you the way we remain dependent on the lord is as we embrace our roles named ambassador of christ in the context god has you we are mouthpieces that speak the same truth that christ spoke we make known the mystery of the gospel uh two very practical things here when uh, when i was uh uh 20 years old i was uh playing baseball in south africa with athletes in action i did not know how to share the gospel I was a professing believer. Uh, I had no idea how to share the gospel. And one of the things they did was they taught us. They, there's many ways to share the gospel. But they, gave us, they gave us a few, four verses out of Romans. Uh, Campus Crusade with Christ, 
dubbed this the Romans Road years ago. It's a great evangelistic tool. It's something just to have in the back of your mind where they said, hey, there's certain essential components of salvation that we got to be able to make clear. Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we're all sinners. And 6.23, the wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.1 says, there's now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I said four, here's a fifth. Romans 10.9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ is Lord, you will be saved. For with your mouth you confess, and with your heart you believe and are justified. Now, that, you memorize those five verses. If you ever have the opportunity to share and you go frozen pizza in that moment, you can just say, oh, you know what? Uh, Paul in the book of Romans says this. That probably took me 60 seconds. All right, you could cut it down to 30 if you only have an elevator ride. All right, you can do it, but they taught me. And by the way, all of a sudden, it was like that sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, all of a sudden, somebody said, hey, you, you may need this. It's the first time I got a hold of it. First time there was a tool there. It's the Romans road. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 8.1, Romans 10.9 and 10. Here's another one. They taught us on that trip. They said, share your testimony. I know about everybody else. I said, I literally said to the manager sitting next to me, I said, what is the testimony? And he said, well, watch this. Guys are sharing. He took a sheet of paper and he split it into three parts. He said, put some bullet points. Life before Christ. How you got saved. What's changed in your life. That's your testimony. They encouraged us to be able to, sh to share that testimony in 40 seconds, four minutes, and 40 minutes. I don't know which one intimidates you more, 40 minutes or 40 seconds. Neither, but 40 minutes, you're telling the, the long story. 40 seconds, it's, it's the quick dive. But all of a sudden, you start becoming one who is prepared for your primary calling as the mouthpiece of Christ that can audibly share the gospel. I want to tell you, I've got a, a prayer request is an application of this message. There's, there's going to be 2,000 people here locally. Some are members of our church body, some are visiting us, that hear this. We're going to get on to some other points, but I don't want to lose this one. Wouldn't it be cool if 2,000 of us prayed a bold prayer? Hey, God, like, first thing tomorrow morning, alarm clock goes off, post it to your alarm clock. All right, God, give me the chance today to share the gospel with somebody, somebody that doesn't know you. What would happen if 2,000 people prayed that prayer? That's a danger, that's a scary prayer. Because can I tell you what's going to happen? I'll go ahead and prophetically speak into your life. If you ask God for the opportunity, you know what you're going to do? You're going to look for it. And if you're looking for it, guess what? You're going to find it. And if you find it, guess what? You're going to have to do it. All right? Or, or run for cover and, and get in the fetal position somewhere. Hey, listen. You're going you're gonna to find... Yeah, listen, the hairs on the back of your neck are going to stand up. You're going to get butterflies in your stomach. Hey, if you think the Christian life is boring... You're not living the Christian life. If the last adrenaline rush you had was 20 years ago and you played high school football and ran out of the tunnel, then, then you don't understand what it is to be an ambassador of Christ. It is meant to be harrowing, exciting, adrenaline pumping like there are lost 
men, God is going to intersect them sovereignly and providentially with your life so that you can speak forth the mystery of the gospel. Okay. Raise your hand if you're willing to pray that with me. I'm just kidding. But I hope you do. I'm praying it. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm praying it. I'm praying it. I'm going to be, I'm going to be running scared tomorrow, okay? Y'all pray for me and pray for yourselves. All right. Secondly, visibly. Visibly, can you think about the apostles with me just for a moment? The apostles walking with Christ Jesus. How do you represent? Uh, visibly means you've got to live out what your mouth professes to be true. There's got to be integrity between your lifestyle and your words, right? You can't live as a heathen while professing to know Christ. Many do, by the way. They have a form of godliness with no power. The scripture warns against that. But we're meant to live a life that is lived unto God, just as Christ. So if you, were, if you walked with Christ, I just pulled out a few things because, yet again, this could be exhaustive. But I think you could, take, you could characterize this attitude in one word. I think Philippians 2 does. Take the attitude of Christ Jesus who considered equality with God, not something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And so humility. One day I've always thought the greatest oxymoron that this world might ever see is the arrogant Christian. Just the very idea that one who understands their own depravity and inability to save themselves and helplessness in the rescue mission of Christ would, would have anything to boast in other than Christ. We ought to, at the very least, be humble. A Christian ought never be accused of being arrogant or he's lost his way. Our attitude should be characterized with humility. Our character, if you were to characterize the, uh, characterize the character of Christ in one word, I think it would be Holiness. That Jesus Christ was set apart for the work that God sent him to do. He was, all he was in this world, but he was not of this world. Amen? That if there's anything we're to emulate, if somebody knows our life, if they see us from afar, if they work near us, or they're in the same gym as us, or they're in our neighborhood, they ought to at least, the longer they get to know us, know that we are living in a countercultural manner that our lives are devoted unto God, that we're not getting uh, wrapped up in the things of this world because we're consumed by the things of his heavenly kingdom. Well, his attitude was humility, his character was holiness, and then his mission. His mission was the lost. Jesus said, my bread, John 4, is to do the will of my Father. Paul writes of him in 1 Timothy 1.15. Here's a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Just got to ask, these questions have all really convicted me. Is, is your day consumed? I, uh, gee whiz, is your day consumed by reaching lost sinners with the gospel? Does that consume your thoughts Monday through Saturday? Uh, you're going to the office. Is that, is, is that the umbrella by which everything else falls underneath? You're going to your kid's game on Saturday amidst the folks in the community. Is that, is that the prevailing thought amidst all the other things that, that we care about that are underneath that? Christ was consumed with the mission of reaching the lost. If we're to, to be visibly his ambassadors, you ought to be able to witness our lives and see somebody that's consumed by the lost. I told you this has really convicted me this week. Uh, in many ways, my life is the warning and not the example on this one. i just be honest with you. There's a lot of days that's not true of me. That's why this is so convicting. Uh, 
because I get distracted. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. But, but make no mistake, that's the privilege of being an ambassador for Christ, to not live for anything less significant than the exaltation of Christ in a darkened world where you get to stand in the gap. Uh, many of us are not acting on our privilege. Uh, thirdly, tangibly. Thirdly, tangibly. How do we, uh, tangibly means you bring the love of Christ to life. They, in other words, when somebody uh, is in relationship with you, they experience Christ. So they don't just hear about him. Yes, they hear about him. They don't just see uh, uh, his humility and holiness and mission played out because your life matches your words, though that's critical. But they experience Christ in relationship with you. This is a little tougher one uh, to, to get our hands around. Let me give you one uh, story that, that I think begins to help. Uh, when I was on that uh, same trip in South Africa, we went to a under, uh, very under-resourced area just outside of jo- Johannesburg, and uh, we were ministering there. We went to share the gospel, our testimony. The people were so poor, though. I noticed uh, they were, they were home- there was a little homeless community. They basically lived in these cardboard boxes. And while we were there trying to share the gospel, I, I generally noticed a somewhat of a dis- disconnect, a disinterest. And uh, it, it, we were also preparing uh, a meal that we were going to serve them. Well, at some point when the meal was prepared, I just remember this, uh, all of a sudden, um, that which we were trying to share, which seemed to be kind of falling on somewhat uninterested ears, all of a sudden, they, everyone started coming out of their uh, homes and they started gathering around us because we, it was a relatively cold night. We had this hot soup. We were serving it. There was this one little rascal who was so skinny. He didn't, looked like he would not eaten in a long time. He was smushed, smushed in the crowd trying to get through to where we were serving as fast as the team could. We were serving these bowls of soup. And so I actually got a bowl of soup or uh, actually grabbed his arm and brought him through uh, the crowd. And he was right there at the, the place where we were serving and we ran out of bowls. And this little guy is just, he's finally at the front of the line. We're waiting on bowls, and he didn't want to wait. He took off his shoe, and he held it up. And I remember just, uh, just looking at just this pitiful sight of this little guy holding his shoe. The shoe had holes in it. Uh, I didn't know what to do. Uh, wait on the bowls, pour soup into the shoe. And so I did. I, I, I poured the soup. And he had his hands where the holes in his shoe were. And he drank. I want to tell you, we were there for about, about 45 more minutes after we served this meal. This guy never left my side. Literally, every, we were going from place to place. We were doing a few things with the kids. We were talking through uh, translators to the folks. He just, just wouldn't leave my side. And finally, I got a chance to get him alone and had a chance to a translator to share why we were there. And all I can tell you is this. Uh, if we had just brought words of truth, now God can work, but I don't think it would have reached this little guy. If, if, if He didn't have time to see the life that I live played out enough to uh, see the light of Christ through me. But when he experienced the love of Christ in a tangible way, it just opened his heart to the weight of our words. A Christian is meant to be one in the community that loves in a way that opens the door for the weight of our words in our lives to bring impact. You, you, you ought to have the right to speak into somebody's life because you've loved them so well. What's the ultimate, what's the ultimate 
display of your love, same as this of Christ's love, that you're willing to lay down your life for somebody, that people see in you a great self-forgetfulness, that they see in you that you care more about them than you do about you. You now have the, your words now carry weight with them. Your life puts in 3D the gospel to them. And, and I, I'm worried that sometimes we're, we're too consumed with ourselves in our own lives. We're too busy walking around like this to, to even notice the needs that are, that are going on around us. And yet our primary calling, our great privilege in Christ, the love of Christ compels us to stand in the gaps. Okay, now I wanted to uh, say this. Uh, what is it that prevents us from, I mean, charging the battlefield every day this week? What, what will prevent, if indeed it's prevented, this week from being the most exciting missional week of following Christ of your entire life? What will prevent that? I was thinking, if I were Satan, I don't like to play this game very often, but if I were Satan, how would I distract me? Because that's what I want to be aware of. I want to be awake to the enemy's schemes. If I were Satan, how would I distract you? Or, or how would I keep you from living out your calling? And uh, I'll tell you, the first thing I would try to do is, 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 is that word. I would try to distract you. I would say, okay, this, this guy, this guy, gal that's compelled by the love of Christ, mastered by grace, consumed with the weight of what Christ has done for them, I gotta distract them from the mission or they will be deadly to my agenda, which is to keep a world in darkness, stealing glory from the one true God that I might put myself in his place. How do I distract them? And I would seek to distract you with these ways. Number one, convincing you to live for the things of this world. Trying to uh, placate your fears, prey upon your fears, um, that you uh, may be uh, uncomfortable uh, trying to convince you that your comfort is preeminent. Uh, trying to convince you that uh, uh, the greatest end of your life would be to uh, uh, attain enough riches of this world. That, in essence, out of Luke. 12, building bigger barns would be the best idea, and that's meant to grab hold of the, just the idea of pursuing this world and all its accoutrements. That would be the best way to live. Now, if I could, if I could get you believing that, you will, in essence, become distracted from your preeminent calling in Christ and the only calling in which you will fully be alive. You remember I told you last week? What you're consumed by, what you endeavor towards, and what you hope in will determine how fully alive you are. Christ came to give the, the abundant life. When he's the answer of those three, you're fully alive. But when you're consumed by something lesser, you're going to be overwhelmed by frustration and discontentment and anxious uh, thoughts and fears. Well, it's evidence of being distracted. So worldliness. Secondly, idolatry. I mentioned this earlier. Uh, if Satan can get you taking things that aren't ultimate... Even good gifts of God. Let me take one that hits home for me, your children. And if he can get you fully focused on your children's welfare, your children's well-being, your children's needs, your children's dreams. By the way, we're meant to be good parents. 
We're meant to be concerned with these things. But we are stewards, not even owners, stewards of our children's lives. Our preeminent calling is to show them what it means to follow Christ out in a lost world as his ambassadors. Not to forsake that calling in order to meet their needs. Do you see how subtle that is? We can take something, an incredible gift of God as our children and make them penultimate. And serving Christ explicitly, missionally moves to the margins. That's being distracted. That's idolizing our kids. That's one that I struggle with. Uh, If I couldn't distract you and I were Satan, what I would do is seek to disqualify you. I would say, is there some, what, 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 is his, what is his flesh predisposed to, preconditioned to? In his BC days, where were the pitfalls? Can I reawaken those? Can I relight a few of those fires? Can we get some hidden sin in his life that would disqualify him so he's too ashamed to stand in the gap? He can't speak because he feels like a hypocrite. And if anybody knows him, he could be found out. How do we entangle him in sin? That'd be my second goal. Distract, disqualify. And if I can't distract or disqualify, here's what I would want to do. Discourage you. I don't want you to feel like you're the only one out there battling while everyone else is distracted or disqualified. You're the, you're the only one left, like Elijah when he said, I'm the only faithful prophet left. God says, hey, Elijah, I got plenty more. Uh, but you're out there in the circumstances of, the, of, the, of this world, the suffering endures until you start losing faith. I had a breakfast with a guy this morning. He was troubled. He was beat down. Not this morning, sorry, this week. He was tired of the fight. And he said to me, and I quote, I am losing faith. And I'm, I'm in this message. I'm going, golly, that's, ex- that's exactly the scheme of the enemy in your life. That, that you would forget the promises of God that say your suffering is for your good and his glory. That your suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope, and your hope will not put you to shame. You're for, what is happening is, in the fatigue of circumstantial difficulty, of tragedy and of suffering and of persecution, you begin to forget the promises of God or stop believing them altogether. You're discouraged. There is, uh, I, I, I believe this is not... Uh, legitimized by some statistic, and I don't think I need it to be. I think the church today is full of distracted, disqualified, and discouraged believers. I think it's full. I think Harvest Church is unique, but I don't think we're uh, immune to what I just said. I I don't think, in my spirit, we have 1,600-plus members who are fully alive, consumed with Christ, hoping in Christ, endeavoring towards Christ, filling gaps audibly, visibly, and tangibly as his ambassadors. I think we've got a lot of folks distracted. We've got a lot of folks discouraged. And we've got some disqualified. And uh, the word that God put on my heart this week was just an honest word. That when, when the Lord speaks to you through a message like this, it's, it's not a word of judgment. It's a word of mercy. That he reconciled you to himself through Christ and gave you this unbelievable privilege of ministry. And you're a casualty. Like, there's a difference. If, if, 
God disciplines those he loves. He comes after you mercifully, reassigns you to your post so you can live fully in Christ. If he's not coming after you, then you gotta worry. If he's turned you over to yourself, then you were never one of his. He will come after a sheep. You can wander in the Christian life, but you can't leave Christ because he'll never leave nor forsake you. Uh, I remember the gal that came through the Emerging Leader Program a few years back whose father owns one of the largest private ranches in North America. And I said, man, you, you must have just spent your entire childhood building fence. Because my granddad owns a small ranch and I spent my summers building fence. She goes, no, 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 we don't, we don't do fences. You what? They have uh, tens of thousands of acres. Don't do fences. How do you, how do you not do fences? What, what do you, how do you keep the cattle from wandering off? And she says, we, we just sweeten the water at the source. And once they taste that sweet water, the further away they get from the source, the more bitter their water becomes. They'll wander to a point, but then they'll come home. That's what a Christian does. Okay, the, uh, there is one other category, though, and I just I can't leave this message without saying this. To the Christian, it's like a tune, that sweet water of intimacy with Christ is like a tuning fork to your soul. And though we wander, though we taste of bitter waters, we, we, we yearn for Christ. He keeps, in our faithlessness, he's faithful. That's 2 Timothy 2. He keeps bringing us back. We find our greatest joy in obedience to him. Amen? Frustrated with my sinful wanderings. Uh, but there is one other category. There's one other way Satan attacks, and that's to deceive. And I couldn't leave this message without saying this, because I bet you there are some here, and this is your camp. There are some that he deceives to believe that they are saved when they're not. Now, Where's that come from? Matthew 7, Jesus says some will arrive on judgment day. It's a harrowing verse. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And they will say, Lord, Lord, what are you talking about? I did all these good works in your name. And he says, I never knew you. And, and, and what the text says is that you were a child of disobedience, that, that obedience was not the mantra of your life. You tried to clean things up. You tried to do good works in my name. You tried to make yourself feel uh, justified in your sin, but you took no joy in obedience to my father. You weren't mine. You didn't know me. There's a camp of folks who obedience is inconvenience. And there's a harrowing warning from Christ. And I would say it this way, if your thoughts move to the place of, um, I know the Bible speaks against this, but I think God wants me to be happy. By the way, I'm, I'm taking all three quotes I'm telling you right now straight out of counseling meetings I've had in the last six weeks. Okay, so this is why I say this. I know the Bible speaks against this, but I think my God wants me to be happy. Beware. Uh, if you think this, 
I know the Bible says this, but I think I need to do this, what's contrary, in order to be true to myself. Be careful. Uh, one more. This may not be God honoring to do, but I'm going to do it, we're going to do it, and we believe God will forgive us. I want to tell you, the grace of God in Christ is not cheap. God did not allow for his son to be slaughtered so that we have a license to sin. Romans 6 says, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. If you can somehow cheapen the death of Christ and be okay with that, and if you can bend your theology to fit your morality, then I just need to tell you, beware. Jesus said in John 15 that those who love me obey me. Obedience is either your greatest joy or it's an inconvenience. And there are those who are deceived that will one day say, Lord, Lord, I did, I, I did all the stuff. I, I went to the membership class. I, I did the whole, I did everything. Depart from me, I never knew you. Well, at the end of his life, Private Ryan went to the graveyard where Captain Miller was buried. And he had his wife, and he had his kids, and he had his grandkids. And he stood at the grave of Captain Miller, who a lifetime ago, probably judging by the looks, 60 years ago, had laid down his life. And he sat there and he said, he reflected and he said this. He said, I have never forgotten what you told me. Every day I remembered your words. And I hope that at least in your eyes, I earned it. Paul says to Timothy, a soldier for Christ, an ambassador for Christ, does not get involved in civilian affairs. He lives only to please the commanding officer. We'll never earn what Christ did on the cross, but we sure do live in light of it. And every day is one step closer to meeting the one who laid his life down. One step closer to our faith becoming sight. And the great reward for one who is not distracted, who doesn't leave the battlefield in discouragement, or disqualified in sin, who keeps coming back, keeps, keeps being available to be reposted, is to hear the words of Christ in that day say, well done, good and faithful servant. And to the follower of Christ, that's enough. That's enough. If Christ calls you home today, would you hear those words? Father, I ask that you would just lay upon us the weight of these words and the, the beauty of this calling. God, this is, this is not a call to, 
to go and to do that which uh, we would be miserable doing. This is a call to go and do that which revives our soul with joy. You said in your word that if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you will lose your life for my sake in the gospel, you'll find it. It's an invitation to refine our lives. God, we get distracted so easily. We get discouraged too quickly. We get disqualified when we don't keep our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And yet you are so merciful to hearken us back to our post that we stand in the gaps as your ambassadors. I just long for that to be true of my own life and of this church, that we stand in the gaps, that we audibly and visibly and tangibly represent you, Lord Jesus, and the good news of the gospel this week. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.